Good morning and welcome to episode 545 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com. How are you, Ben? Okay. We are, of course, uh, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com, the best tool on the internet for baseball things. So, anything to mention before we go? Should we remind people that the Effectively Wild Reliever League is over? And if you want to look at where you finished, if you were participating, you can go to the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. All of the standings are in there. And if you don't use Facebook, you can also email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and we will send you the link. I also tweeted it. Uh, not that long ago, so you can find it in my time. It's like my second to last mm-hmm. tweet. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's another thing you can do. And um, Bobby Aguilera mm-hmm. was the big winner, but um, I was uh, and good for Bobby. I'm proud of him. Maybe maybe he'll come on and uh, talk about what he learned about relievers. I haven't had a, a chance to really examine what I learned about relievers this year, but I, I'm, I'm going to try to Thank before you. the off season gets too deep. You learned about the power of crowdsourcing. I did. I did learn that. Actually, that's a it's good actually point. it's actually. I mean, it's it's significant how badly I rolled over everybody else. It just is just based based on some fairly non uh, uh, non rigorous crowdsourcing. Right. I mean, just just <laughs> basically picking up on what other people were doing and mm-hmm. and kind of having the awareness of what five other people thought of Fernando Salas. Yeah. Was such a huge advantage. What did I? Fi- I think I finished, finished my average first through fifth, <laughs> and yeah, also I, like eighth and tenth. And <laughs> I think I was my average of my eleven teams. The average was sixteenth out of one hundred and twenty. out of one hundred and thirty-two teams. So huh. yeah, one hundred and thirty-two teams, and I finished first through fifth. And yeah, I mean, it's it's it really actually is pretty amazing because we think of these relievers as being almost totally random. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, there was this insight that the group figured out without even realizing it. Yeah. And I know that that's not an original thought. That's that is what crowdsourcing is, and it's been written about, and it's uh, a over over applied concept. But I think in this case, it's actually not over applied. And if I were a general manager <laughs> of a major league team that thought that that uh, you know. I had to go get Joe Smith because he's the one I really love or whatever. Joe Smith's not a great example because he's really good, but uh, that I really love. I I might second-guess myself and say, well, how many people can I get to actually uh, vote on this instead of just picking one? Yeah, I would start a podcast and create a league. <laughs> it, it, it really, I mean, it does seem like a lot of work, but Ben, you know what they say. One run is worth $500,000. You could easily run this league for less than $500,000. In fact, this might be my in to a major league team. <laughs> if a team wants to hire me as a bullpen consultant, uh, I don't know anything about bullpens, mm-hmm. but I do know something about reliever leagues, uh, yeah. and I would be happy to do it. Um, it didn't but, even take that big a crowd. It was no. it was a crowd source, but it was only 100-something people. Well, especially when you consider that, I mean, I was, I mean, one of the leagues was drafting first, you know, one of the leagues was ahead of the others, and another league was second. And so, like a lot of times, I was in uncharted territory mm-hmm. uh, to some degree. Um, although a lot of times it was simply finding, like if I was on pick one seventy eight and no other league was on pick one fifty six, 
it was just sort of looking and seeing, well, okay, who has gone in the first 156 for the other, uh, kind of generally speaking. The other thing, though, is that we're actually not even really capturing just how powerful the proud crowdsource could have been because I was completely overwhelmed by this process. I mean, I was there were 11 teams drafting simultaneously, and we were in a race to get done before the season started, and so I didn't ever want to be the one slowing things down. And so I was drafting like every half hour for two or three weeks mm -hmm. and doing it with almost no, like it was like 10 seconds that I would spend on each pick because I just wanted to get it over with. And so it's not even like I was doing a real vigorous, like, okay, who's the best pitcher left kind of a thing. It was like just skim the people who've been picked. I had like kind of a, just I kind of had like a little notepad where I had scribbled a couple of names that I saw had been drafted. And so like if I could, I would just cross those off. And if one was available, I'd take them. But I mean, I didn't really capture the the full power of crowdsourcing. So yeah, there, this this does seem to be significant. This, mm -hmm. this might be better than Pakoda. This might, <laughs> it might be. Our listeners are smart. Maybe For relievers. Well, cause roll maybe not individually, a, but collectively, you guys are smart. When you think about the things that we talk about with Pakoda's limitations. Pakoda does so many things better than humans, but the limitations, they all show up here. There's the, there's the way that relievers can really almost radically reinvent themselves with uh, either a roll switch, which doesn't affect all pitchers equally, or with a new pitch, or with a coming back from an injury, or having an injury, or adding randomly adding six miles an hour to their fastball, or you know, whatever. I mean, you have all these 30th rounders who become dominant relievers and you have all sorts of things that Pakoda might struggle to pick up in the small sample that is any reliever's season. And so the crowdsourcing probably is able to pick up on a lot of that and certainly is able to pick up on depth charts maybe better than, uh, I mean, Pakoda, we try to incorporate depth charts into what we do, but we're only, you know, we're a staff of a dozen this league was a staff of 132. So, mm -hmm. uh, anyway, I didn't get to my point, which is I just wanted to congratulate uh, John John Chenier, the scorekeeper of Effectively Wild, mm -hmm. who finished second in the non-SAM division. So, hmm. uh, Bobby Aguilera was the champ, but John Chenier second. I think that speaks to his credibility as a scorekeeper. Nice. Okay. Um, by the way, we never we never closed the book on Diamondbacks headlines for the season. There will there will be no more Diamondbacks headlines, I suppose, and that's sort of sad. But one of the last ones on September twenty eighth was "We still love our D backs" from mm -hmm. Jonathan Levine. <laughs> that was the headline, and it was interesting because there were uh, it was a top submission, but it was not <laughs> the winner was was long lost season over at last. <laughs> it was I like collie cool customer. Mm -hmm. Right. It was funny because there was a long thread in the Facebook group about what the headlines would be for Kirk Gibson getting fired. And there's only mm. one. It's almost some form of censorship here. There's almost no reference to Gibson being fired except for the September 26th top submission can't blame this one on Gibby. That was no the winner. Only, that was there it. was no winner announced that day. <laughs> only a top submission, no winner. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you to azcentral.com for providing us with that amusement and to Nora Morse and all the all the headline regulars. Okay. Wait, one more thing. Yes. Um, I just want to encourage everybody on probably on Tuesday um, to go vote in the Internet Baseball Awards, which mm-hmm. um, we run at Baseball Prospectus. We've been doing it for a long time. Uh, it's, a, it's a good counterweight to the official awards. Uh, it usually, uh, you know, many, 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 many people vote, and the results are usually kind of uh, encouraging and in, enlightening. Um, I learn things from the way that people vote, and I think that we, as a, as, a, as a people, do very well. But anyway, we want everybody to vote. We want you to vote. We want this to be uh, the entire Internet's um, baseball awards uh, process. So please go find an Internet Baseball Awards ballot. If you can't find one on your site, on our site, which you probably will be able to uh, Tuesday morning, uh, but people will be tweeting their ballots. And so find one, vote, do your democratic democratic duty. Yes, and endorse that suggestion, and I will put a link in the Facebook group when there is one. Right. Okay, so tonight, if you're listening on Tuesday, there's playoff baseball or Play in baseball, which is close, close, close to playoff close. baseball. Yes. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We've come to the point in the year where we can just do a podcast about a baseball game. <laughs> and that's it. Which would make the podcast a lot easier if we just did that during the regular season. Just picked a game and broke it down in way too much detail. Um, that would that'd be easy. We'd always have a topic. But... That's kind of how it works in the postseason, and people are actually interested in talking about one game. So this game is the A's versus the Royals, and it's the wild card game, and it's kind of an interesting matchup, I think, or as interesting as as one baseball game can be. There's only so much analysis one can do of a single baseball game, and yet we try to do it every year. So I wrote something for Grantland, and I know BP has a preview up also today, Tuesday. So you can go read those if you like, but we will talk about them now. So uh, this is this is an interesting matchup of teams. It's almost almost opposites in certain ways. It's the the team that is known for embracing on base percentage versus the team that is known for neglecting on base percentage and the team that has made the playoffs many times and failed to advance past the first round or win a game past the first round versus the team that has not made the playoffs in decades. Um, And the one thing that they do have in common, I suppose, is that they each have very good starting pitchers going. They have their best starting pitchers going, pitchers who they traded for and acquired almost for the purposes of pitching a game like this. And both of them are also about to be competing with each other for a contract in not too long. But right now, presumably their minds are not on that. So you have the Royals who uh, nearly won the AL Central. And you have the A's who, well, they, they nearly missed the playoffs altogether. They are entering the playoffs with the worst second half of any playoff team ever. Of course, that doesn't really mean that much because it wouldn't have been possible without the second wild card, which has been around for only a few years now. So uh, this is, I guess, the ultimate test of that myth 
or that belief that how you enter the postseason matters. And I, I actually, I just want to argue that real okay. quick. I don't think it is. I think that when we talk about how you enter the postseason, we're talking about usually most people are talking about the final weeks. You might be talking about the final weekend. You might be talking about September. You might even be talking about some of August and September. But an entire half is a totally different thing. I think that we, I think most people could agree that uh, there is some, it would be fair to wait a team's season somewhat based on their entire second half. Maybe. There was a, a piece of research at Fox Sports a couple of weeks ago by Dave Cameron who looked at that exact question and did the, the correlation between second half winning percentage and and uh, and postseason winning percentage. And he, he kind of concluded the same thing that people generally conclude about the last week or two or whatever period you want to use, that there's no real correlation there or that, I mean, there has to be some effect in that we're always comparing to regular season record and half of a regular season is half of your regular season record. So if you are bad for the entire second half, then, then you you have a worse record to compare your postseason performance to. But uh, he, he found that there wasn't really any tendency for teams to play more in the postseason like they had in the second half as, as opposed to the entire season. Okay, point basically withdrawn. <laughs> okay. Not um, entirely not entirely withdrawn. I'm not I'm not ready to abandon it, but point withdrawn. Well, so it is a legitimate question of whether this is the same A's team that was off to a semi-historic pace in the first half that had the best run differential at the break since since the 2001 Mariners and seemed to be poised to do special things in the second half and then completely fell apart. And there are some differences. Obviously, they've made trades, and they have mostly added, I would say mostly improved their team through those trades, although you can certainly find people who would argue the opposite point, particularly the the UNS Cespedes trade kind of approximately coincided with the beginning of the A's forgetting how to hit, and they scored five runs per game on average up through July, and then they made that trade, Cespedes for Leicester, and since then they have scored three and a half games, or three and a half runs per game. And obviously Cespedes himself cannot be responsible for a decline of a run and a half per game. The arguments that seem to suggest that that was some kind of cause and effect relationship posit that there was some chemistry effect, some trickle down effect. Uh, Billy Bean meddled. He, he delved too deep and too greedily and he tried to improve his pitching staff and he surrendered a good hitter and he got what was coming to him because now the team doesn't hit anymore. Of course, if you look at how Cespedes has hit since then, it's not very good. He's been, Exactly, yeah, that, a, a league average hitter. Because yeah, because he's right. missing. He's missing his chemistry, boys. <laughs> exactly, man. it makes right. It works both ways. Uh, but but even right. So you that whole hypothesis depends on the idea that Cespedes was this clubhouse chemistry linchpin, and that without him everything fell apart. Because there's no 
no way to make it about on-field performance because Cespedes was, you know, a, an above-average hitter, but not much above average for his position. And, and a <laughs> good defender, too. Good player, but not not someone whose departure could account for that kind of decline. You know, 2001 Barry Bonds' departure probably could not account for that kind of decline. So that seems like sort of a stretch, maybe? You wrote about the A's in chemistry. Do you do you find that to be a stretch? I, If you're saying it, I find it to be a stretch. If uh, at the end of your life you, uh, you get a glimpse of all of the world's wisdom and truths and you see that uh, this was one case where it happened, Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't argue with God in that case. Mm-hmm. However, uh, if you are writing it, you are probably um, stretching. Mm-hmm. And there are other examples, and there's been some good work done at Athletics Nation, the, the A's SB Nation log, looking at what the A's have done differently, why they haven't hit. And it doesn't seem like they have abandoned their plate discipline. It seems like they're still making contact as much as they did before, and that's one of the special things about them is that they make lots and lots of contact, like more contact than anyone but the Royals, but they also walk and they used to hit home runs. And that is the difference that they don't hit home runs anymore. And they seem to have a lower BABIP lately. And that could be part fluky. It could be part regression. It could be part injuries because there are some significant injuries. There's Brandon Moss playing with a bone-on-bone hip thing and getting cortisone shots for that. And there's Josh Donaldson with injuries. And Stephen Vogt had an injury. And uh, Jed Lowry had an injury. Lots and lots of injuries. Coco Crisp, not season-ending except for John Jaso, which was season-ending concussion. And that has hurt because as soon as he got hurt, Derek Norris seemed to stop hitting. And now Giovanni Soto is catching most of the time. And so Craig you, Gentry. Yeah, Craig Gentry too. So you can pin Whoa. It. Mm. Whoa. Mm. Gentry? <laughs> I I misspoke. Gentry? <laughs> okay. So you don't pronounce it gentry. I do not. Um Craig Gentry okay. is also hurt and so that seems to be part of it. And so you could say that this is not the A's team that was hitting so well. They've got a bunch of guys banged up, and maybe the fact that they still have this impressive run differential that would suggest that they are underlying talent-wise a better team than the Royals, maybe that is not really the case. There's something that Jonah Carey writes about often, and I wrote about it for my preview too, his his idea, or not his idea, but an idea that, that appeals to him called Cluster Luck which is uh, an analyst named Ed Feng's idea. It's basically basically the idea that you outperform your, your base offensive statistics by stringing a bunch of hits together, sort of a, a more complex way of saying that a team just hit well with runners in scoring position. And both the A's and the Royals, by this cluster luck measure, which sounds like something else but is not, uh, are near the top of the leaderboard in runs added via just sequencing and stringing a bunch of hits together that uh, that is mostly luck-based or seems like it would be luck-based. And so maybe the fact that the A's have underperformed their Pythagorean record by a lot is not quite accurate. Maybe they've also 
lucked into a lot of those runs, and so maybe they're not actually quite that good. Then again, the Royals have a pretty pretty lousy-looking offense as it is, and they have also received the benefit of that sequencing and cluster luck. So that means that they're probably worse than than they look even. And this is the first playoff team to finish last in walks and home runs. It's uh, something like the 20th or so best hitting team this year alone, looking at just just non-pitchers. And the worst playoff team since the 2007 Diamondbacks, who are the answer to to everything. When you want to say that someone is the worst playoff team since X, it's usually the 2007 Diamondbacks who were outscored by 20 runs and somehow fluke their way into a 90-win season and a playoff appearance. So they are not good hitting teams, at least lately. One of them has been bad all year. One of them has been bad for a couple months. They have good starters going. They both have good bullpens. You could dispute which is better, I suppose. The, the Royals have the maybe the more impressive 7th, 8th, and ninth combo. But the A's also have a deep bullpen with lots of intimidating pitchers that you would not want to face. So it's uh, an interesting little showdown here. I don't know that there is a huge edge either way. Do you have an inclination um, I have a few questions for you. Okay. One, in a one game, obviously, one game, anything can happen, etc. That's the disclaimer for all this. But in one game, whose style of roster building helps more? The A's have uh, this kind of famously uh, utile roster where everybody can move around. Mm-hmm. Some people can play different positions. There's lots of platoons. You can... You know, they have more early pinch hitting than any team because you'll see them pinch hit in like the fifth inning if the starter has left the game. Um, a lot of lefty righty stuff. Um, the Royals have basically nine guys who play every day and are, um, as we talked about yesterday, they all qualified for the batting title because they all play every day. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have much of a bench but they don't have much call for a bench, and they mm-hmm. haven't had much call for a bench all year. Uh, and they also have, I would say, uh, the one place where they really excel on the bench that the A's don't, although the A's do have Billy Burns now, but um, the Royals have a lot of speed, uh, both in their lineup, but also in their bench now with uh, Dyson and mm-hmm. um, and uh, Terrence Gore, who might be the fastest man um, in baseball, or at least mm-hmm. second. Um, so which kind of roster works better? Are you, I mean, the, the, the whole platoon thing seems real great over the course of a season because you get lots of guys rest. You have a lot of kind of layers in case somebody gets hurt. Uh, you can, you know, excel against both right and left-handed batters. But on the other hand, there's not much call for, for flexibility in a one game situation. On the other hand, as the game progresses, there's certainly more flexibility on the A's end. So do you have a feeling of whether either either team has an advantage just based on that? Well, and there's also the fact that you can stack your lineup, right? You have that option, and that helps you in a single game. So in this, in this game, going against right-handed James Shields, they will likely only have two right-handed hitters, one of whom is Josh Donaldson, who's their best overall hitter. And the other one would be Soto. Um, 
and so that theoretically would be good. With Shields, I don't know that it is because Shields has a reverse split over the last couple of years, and usually that's kind of a fluky thing. But in his case, he throws all of the pitch types that you would expect someone with a non-existent or reverse split to have. He throws cutters and curves and change-ups, and all of those pitch- pitches are very resistant to platoon splits. So I don't know that stacking a lineup against James Shields really helps all that much. But against a typical pitcher, it should, right? The idea to the the ability to just run out a bunch of guys and have the platoon advantage. It's not just because they can swap guys in. It's also because they can choose who to start from this well, that, deep yeah. bench. That's already kind of baked in, though, to their performance. They do that every day all year, so right. they're not gonna they're not gonna stack it extra in this game. It's sort of like, like I don't know. I guess maybe the question is sort of like who's able to stick. Uh, I, I guess whose strategy is able to be maybe stuck to and or exaggerated more in a one game situation if there is one. Uh, by the way, uh, you wouldn't exactly stack your lineup against Sean Lester either who has, uh, this year, he has a sizable reverse split, mm-hmm. but generally in his career, he has a, a very, very, very moderate split yeah. as well. So and, it, it, it almost the, doesn't even matter. Right, and the Royals actually hit better against lefties, not by a, a whole lot, but they have Aoki, right, who has a reverse split reverse for his split. career, and they have Gordon, who has a very small split, and then they have and a upper, couple other yeah. lefties who might be susceptible, but on the whole... Um, it's not really a weakness of theirs, and they have five righties, so it's not as though it's like it's not as though it's eight lefties going up against them. I mean, we're talking about right. one or two extra guys who might have the platoon advantage, but not a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the answer neither? Is the answer simply it won't be an an exaggerated factor in this game? Probably, yeah. I mean, in the typical game, I suppose it's not. I I don't know. On the whole. It's kind of skewed because, like, the Royals starters are not very good. <laughs> they were they were better starters than than you wouldn't want to substitute for them. But there are certain people who would be starting for the Royals who maybe you wouldn't want to start for the Royals. And that if you had the system that the A's have worked out, maybe you wouldn't have, say, Mike Moustakis starting or the choice between Mike Moustakis and Jason Nix or Christian Cologne. Maybe you'd have a better choice than that um but as it is i don't know that it makes that much of a difference okay second question uh lester and shields are both notable really i would say for being innings eaters more than for being um super super ace level kind Mm -hmm. of pitchers like shields shields really his his value is in his hoarseness uh lester has a little bit higher uh, level of performance generally, but mm-hmm. also a horse. Not you know, neither one of them is is going to put a sub two ERA up anytime soon. Uh, they're both very good pitchers who uh, eat a ton of innings. Are they both, in a sense, going to be um, overvalued going into this game because you actually don't care that much if you get innings out of your starter? And in particular, can't you just imagine a situation where Shields talks himself? Uh, talks Ned Yost out of pulling him after six. I mean, they have the best bullpen. They have the best, you know, uh, seven, eight, nine guys by, you know, runs prevented mm-hmm. in history. 
Right. They have, I forget who, who had this wonderful fun fact uh, that I saw, but no two, no team has ever had two sub-1.5 ERA guys in a bullpen, and the Royals have three. The stat that I cited was that they are the only team other than the 1907 Cubs to have three pitchers who threw at least 60 innings with an ERA of 1.5 or below. Okay. So, same uh, basic think, idea. Yeah, same basic idea. So, um, but it's shields. Like you could imagine that if they had to go to Danny Duffy, they'd get through five or six, and then they'd go to their six, seven, seven, eight, nine guys. Maybe they'll do that with shields. But can't you just imagine shields pitching into the eighth and putting two guys on in the eighth? Yeah, but on the other hand, same with the A's, really. Right, but on the other hand, I feel like with Ned Yost in particular, maybe there's some value in having. A guy like Shields, because Shields never has a disaster start. He never has a start where he just goes three or something. He really almost never has a start where he goes five. Only four times this year, and he he led the league in starts. He made 34 starts, and in only four of them did he fail to get through six. And in those four, he pitched at least five. So, But, but Ben. Yes. I'm just going to read you a few starts. Okay. Six six and a third innings, eight runs. Five and two thirds innings, seven runs. Five and a third innings, seven runs. Seven innings, six runs. Six and two thirds innings, six runs. Seven innings, five runs. Five innings, five runs. Six innings, four runs. Seven innings, four runs. Five and two thirds, four runs. That's the disaster in this case, is that you're leaving him out there because he's your horse. Mm-hmm. And he gives up the seven runs that your middle relief darn well could have given up too. That could be, yeah. I mean, maybe if once you're talking about a single game, we get so antsy about taking starters out that you could almost say it about every starter, right? Like by the time you get to the sixth or something, and you can you can generally expect uh, anyone who would be starting uh, this game on a playoff team a must-win game would be someone who you could count on going, say, six or something. And so maybe Shields goes a little further. Maybe that backfires. It's also possible that if he takes you through six, and odds are he will take you through six, although, as you point out, it might not always be a Sterling six. But if he could get you through six, then you're into the Bochi or into the, the Yost, I don't know why I said Bochi system, where you have your seven, eight, and nine guys, whereas... If you have a starter who might go five, then you have that danger inning where if you have a jam, Yost is not going to bring in the best reliever he's going to bring in. And the Royals kind of like have a pretty decent middle innings bullpen core at this point. They have uh, Brandon Finnegan and they have Jason Fraser and, and, you know, some pretty decent relievers, but not as good as their late inning guys. So at least you know that with shields, if he's pitching well, he's going to to get you there. Um, although I wonder, I also think that maybe this won't be the case a case where shields goes really deep into the game because he is a strike thrower, but not a strike zone thrower. He throws lots of strikes. He doesn't walk anyone, but he gets a lot of chases. He doesn't really pound the zone. He throws a, a below average uh, percentage of strikes in the zone. So he relies on getting chases and the A's 
at least when they were a good offensive team, and, and actually I think now because their selectivity hasn't really declined, they don't chase. And so you would think that maybe that wouldn't be the best matchup for Shields, that since he relies on chases, the A's would let a lot of those pitches go that most teams wouldn't, and that maybe he will rack up some pitches and won't be in there for eight innings as he might otherwise. Yeah, right. You you could be right. You're probably right about all of that. I, I mean, the odds are that this that the, the circumstances won't cause this to be the problem that I'm imagining. It just seems to me that if Garrett Cole gets in trouble in the fifth or if Michael Walker gets in trouble in the sixth or something like that, they get yanked. And that's a good thing. They should mm-hmm. get you. You should have a, sh- a very short hook in mm-hmm. a situation like this. And I feel like in a way it's possible that Shields and Lester essentially give their teams the worst sixth-inning guy that you could ask for because the hook is too slow. And instead of having um, Finnegan or um, you know a good reliever ready to go, uh, you know maybe in there by default, uh, they're going to pitch the sixth. I don't mm-hmm. know. Probably not going to happen. But, I mean, in a weird way, it could be a, a little bit of a curse. We'll see. Probably, it could like, be. But, yeah, if you if you were going to worry about this with any team, maybe the well, I, I don't know. The Royals have a good bullpen, but they also have Yost, who would not use that good bullpen until the predetermined time. So I don't know whether whether they are less susceptible to that or not, because he's he's not going to put in Wade Davis in the sixth. It's just not going to happen. So you're choosing between a Shields going through the lineup for maybe the third time or someone like Frazier and maybe you still want the reliever. I don't know. All right. Uh, and then the last, the last thing I wanted to ask you is um, which, which GM has more to lose here? Hmm. Well, you get the sense that Billy Bean is like a lifetime appointment, right? I mean, he's he doesn't have to worry about his, job security i would think he doesn't have to worry about his job security but he also has so much more attention on him yes right i mean just by getting there i suppose dayton moore has kind of fulfilled his contract in a way i don't know whether royals fans regard the play-in game as as technically making the playoffs or not maybe at this point they're desperate enough to count this as a full-fledged playoff appearance, no matter what happens, I would not blame them. Um, so I don't know if, if I mean, if this is the pinnacle of this Royals team and they play one game and that's it, and they're done and they're not back next year, then that's probably not going to satisfy anyone. Um, but I guess just by getting there, Yost is, or uh Moore has kind of gotten the monkey off the back to some extent. Like, you you won't talk about the streak anymore, most likely, no matter what happens. And so that was a big hurdle to clear, whereas with Bean, each time that he gets there and doesn't get any further than, than the first round, it's another nail in the coffin of, of that reputation of a guy who can build teams that can go only so far, which, uh, I, you know, certain people are never going to subscribe to and certain people will subscribe to no matter what happens. So I don't know if it matters, but probably in terms of public perception, eh, maybe Bean, maybe Bean has more luster to lose as a 
general manager as a builder of teams, but maybe practically speaking, just because of all that has gone into the Royals and engineering this team over the eight years or however long it's taken to complete this process and bring the Royals back to the playoffs, maybe there's more pressure on them ultimately. Yeah, with being a loss would clearly strengthen an already existing narrative. With more, I think that it only will if Shields gets hit hard. Like if if they lose because Shields doesn't make it out of the third, mm. uh, that might stick to him. Uh, but otherwise, you're right. This this will probably be considered enough for now. And um, although there's also if they if they lose next year and never get to the playoffs again, then I think he'll be judged on that without. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think this will factor into his future judgings. What? How much does the uh, effort that Billy Bean put into this team this year change well, the judging? Well, it's he, both of them. I mean, that's why it's significant for both of them. They both went. I mean, the, right. the, the narrative is they both went all in on these big moves to get the basically the pitchers that they have right now. Although with Bean, it's also Samarjan and Hamill. I mean, your. I mean, they're gonna. The A's are going to have some sniping for the next eight or nine years if Addison Russell turns into a star, um, mm-hmm. and if they don't get a postseason series out of this season, that'll certainly um, uh, amplify that disappointment mm-hmm. when Addison Russell is a superstar. Um, so, I think that Dean probably has more to lose. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the sense that Bean has anything to lose, it's <laughs> right. all because it's all like we it it all just depends on how personally Bean takes any of this. If Bean doesn't care <laughs> what people say about him, and mm-hmm. if he's really just focused on winning, um, then this is just you know some moves that did or didn't work out, and he'll roll with it and figure out how to do the next thing and be focused on his job. But if Bean is anything like you and me, then he'll read every single negative that's <laughs> ever said about him. I don't think he would have survived this long if he was anything like us. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so, um, anyway, I don't, I, yeah, I, I think that's probably, it. I think Bean has more. Mm-hmm. So are we making picks of any sort? No. <laughs> okay. The Royals do have home field advantage. So that's something to mm-hmm. overcome. Um, but I think once you factor that in, it is it is too close to call. I will have hey, to... Yeah, A's have the better starter. What would you guess Pakoda will say? I would guess that the A's would be favored just because of their run differential and third-order record and all of that, which would suggest that they're a much stronger team. So I would, I would guess that that plus Lester would overcome home field advantage but not by a whole lot mm-hmm. yeah probably i would guess yeah i would guess probably something like 55 percent mm-hmm. for the a's is what pakota would say mm-hmm. okay so that's that There's... do the royals have a significant do you think of of kaufman as being a a park with any home field advantage i mean they don't have the dimensions slash run scoring environment are nothing notable and you don't really think about the kaufman fan base and i mean we've never seen like it's not right we have no idea they for all we know they don't exist i mean tomorrow will be the first time i see them Uh uh so yeah it's hard to know whether this is 
whether they have a, an, an outsized home field advantage or not, but it doesn't feel exactly like they do. I don't know. It's a place where, yeah, it, it's a place that inflates extra base hits, right? Not home runs, but other types of hits. And the Royals are a team that puts a lot of balls in play, but does not hit home runs wherever they are. So maybe, maybe there's some benefit to being there where they're more constructed to get base hits than another team. Are we, did I just realized, is my Twitter feed tonight going to be flooded with sports writers talking about the two barbecue places that everybody goes to? <laughs> yeah, I guess probably. Huh. All right. So that's my <laughs> prediction. Okay. All right. So that is it. There's another baseball game we could talk about tomorrow. We don't know what we'll do. Maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll do some emails. Maybe we'll do emails later in the week. Feel free to send us emails emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. So enjoy baseball, and we will be back tomorrow.